One of the things that stops small business owners from creating marketing content consistently is this feeling of being uninspired, of having no idea what to say in the first place. If you can relate to this, you are in good company. So many of us struggle with knowing what our marketing content should actually be about. But I am here to help. I have come up with 100 prompts that you can use to guide your marketing from your social media posts to your emails to your longer form content. I guarantee that these prompts will get you inspired and that you'll have more ideas than you even know what to do with. You can download this list of 100 marketing prompts for free at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100 prompts. That's makinggoodpodcast.com slash 100-P-R-O-M-P-T-S. Welcome back to Making Good, the podcast for small businesses who want to make a big impact. I'm your host, Lauren Tilden, and this is episode 215. I am so excited to be back with this month's edition of Making Good Book Club. We are talking about the book Hooked by Nir Eyal. So a little bit more about book club. Once a month, my amazing book club co-host, Sherelle Griffith, and I discuss a book we think can help move the needle in your small business, and we share our takeaways specifically for small businesses. This month, as I said, we talked about Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products by Nir Eyal. I had heard some amazing things about this book, and I was so, so excited to cover it in this month's book club episode. The more I read, however, the more I realized that Hooked is really geared toward tech companies, tech products, things like apps and games, and really not so much physical products or services like the ones that most of us have as our businesses. However, that is not to say that this wasn't a great book. Sherelle and I were able to pull out so many lessons and ideas from each section and throughout our conversation, apply them to different kinds of business models you might have as a listener of this podcast. It was a fun exercise in finding the applications of each of his suggestions for all kinds of businesses. Plus, I got to ask my favorite question, what can we learn from this? Another aspect of the book that I really liked was the way that Nir Eyal took the time to consider the ethics of the hook theory, the marketing strategy he outlines in this book. I've talked before on this podcast about how I actually dislike the language of hunting or fishing as it comes to how we market to people. People are not fish after all. So I did pause at the term hook, but Nir Eyal takes a lot of care in considering the ethics of his theory, which I really appreciated. And I think we need to think more about this as marketers. So this is a bit of an unconventional episode today, but one definitely worth giving a listen to because there is a lot to get out of it. In this book club episode, we talked about the hook theory, the power and financial benefit of habit forming products, the importance of perceived utility, the ethics of using the hooked theory, the four phases of the hooked model and more. Stay tuned through this, the end of this episode for our announcement of our pick for next month's making Good book club book. Just a quick reminder that if you want the updates on book club, you can sign up to get notified at makinggoodpodcast.com slash book club. Okay, let's get into this month's book club conversation all about Hooked. Hello, Cheryl. Welcome back to Making Good Book Club. Thank you for having me back. Don't know what the words are today. Clearly, I'm rusty <laughs> after our uh, Christmas and New Year break. <laughs> yes, this is our first recording of 2024 after a long break and um, we were just catching up a little bit before we hit record but it sounds like you had a good time off with lots of sleep lots of sleep which was well deserved and well needed (laughs) yeah same in fact this morning trying to finish the book on time I found myself dipping back into sleep so as as we'll talk about I did not read the very final part of this which is the case studies but I read most of the book and I think we'll still have a good chat about it So the book that we are talking about today is Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products by Nir Eyal. And this is a book. Well, actually, let me ask you, like, what would you say this book is about, Cheryl? I would describe it as creating a product, as it says, that makes people use it over and over again. So it basically becomes part of people's lives. Mm Mm-hmm. And how we can purposely design our products in order for that to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of like science and Mm. evidence-based context in this book. It's not just like, I don't know, marketing theory. It's a lot of, you know, there were studies on this and this and XYZ is what happened. So I think there's a lot of really useful scientific 
outcomes from this. We did want to give a little bit of a caveat right off off the bat that like digging into the book, I think we both had the same reaction, which is most of the examples in the book and a lot of the context in the book is about like tech products, essentially yeah. like Pinterest, Facebook, <laughs> dating apps, like games. It's thing things like technological products that you use on a recurring basis. That is sort of the bulk of the examples. I do think there's a lot of really interesting outcomes once we dig in that we can pull out for businesses who aren't like an app on the phone. Yeah. But yeah. I would totally agree. Like I actually really, really enjoyed the book. Like actually from like a interest and novelty and like so many ideas. And for me, I think like there's a lot of terms, like it felt like I was learning a lot of like psychology theories and stuff like that. But I definitely think it to use it probably for most of our listeners, it's going to be around having to look at it in a different angle and like yeah. pull out some of the principles that are explained and then be like, how does this apply to my business? Because it's not quite, it's just like direct transferable as if you were just a digital tech company. Yeah. So the book is divided into several parts and kind of the main point of the book is to explain something a theory that that the author has of the called the hook theory where it's a cycle basically of four stages that you take your user or your customer through in order to hopefully get them into this recurring cycle that makes them just want to keep coming back and back again to use your product or your app or whatever it is so first we'll talk about like let's dig into each one of these elements of the hooked model. And Mm -hmm. then I think a really, really important part of this book that I'm really glad is included is basically like, this is manipulation in a lot of ways. (laughs) And we should be ethical about the way that we think about manipulation. So a lot of what we're talking about in this book is like really nudging people's behavior into the direction that we want them to take, which like there is a way you can use that for good and a way you could use that not for good. So mm-hmm. um, there's a chapter in this book that I think is so, so important when we're talking about manipulation, essentially, and that's like the ethics of it. So I definitely want to talk about that in terms of what he has to say about that and like what you and I have to say about that too, Sherelle. And that's kind of the bulk of the book. There's a little bit of, there's some case studies. There's a a little bit of bonus content linked, but um, it's mostly all about this hooked model, which has four parts and then talking about the ethics of it. Yeah, no, actually it was one of those books where I was like, oh, actually there's not like the actual model took up most of the book. (laughs) If that makes sense. I liked that. It wasn't like the model is one chapter and then all this like here and there, like just riffing on it. It was really bulky. I do have a quick question for you though, because the original yeah. this book was written in 2014 mm-hmm. um, and I definitely found some of it quite dated and a little bit funny. Yeah. Was you? Yeah. I didn't know if you were reading the same version or if it had been updated. Yeah, so. yeah all the examples were like from <laughs> 2007 to 2013 maybe. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, you know, he's referencing like what he's calling brand new technology. It's like, well, it's now like 10 years old, but it's really funny. (laughs) I still think, yeah, I don't think that any of the content of the theory is really any, I don't know. I don't, I don't feel like the model is outdated. No, no, no. It's not at all. No. So maybe before we get into hooked model, we could talk about the one kind of preamble chapter, which is called the habit zone. And is this where he has the, his graph of trying to work out basically how do we, I suppose like how do we form habits, but mostly also important, like why it's important to us as businesses, because the, there is a reality of the reason why he's made this model isn't because like, it's not purely just out of the good of his heart. Obviously there's a good reason for business. And so he talks around some things like increasing customer lifetime value, which is something I talked to people about a lot and I think it's something that all of us if we want to try and make our life easier as business owners will want to try and increase that so I thought that was interesting that he mentioned that um and often Mm -hmm. um one of the ones he mentioned was about supercharging growth and I think that is something that's really like relevant to tech like actually 
when we talk, talk about people and they're making apps, for example, it's like how many people have an app on their phone that they open once and then they never use it again. And in order to grow, it's like the more people use your app. So if you manage to make it a habit, so they use it often, that's what's going to help to charge your growth. And that's when people talk to you about it more, they recommend it more, they refer it, all that type of stuff. So I could really see, I suppose, some of those, the benefits of why we actually should be looking to help people use our products on a regular basis and actually become a habit. Yeah. I thought the sort of intro to this chapter was really interesting. And he's talking about how when he goes, like the author himself, when he goes on runs, he zones out and he normally always does it first thing in the morning. And he has like his routine of he gets up, he goes for the run. He like does his morning routine after that. And so he's talking about this one time where he had some kind of conflict and he actually ended up doing the run after work, like in the evening instead. And so he went on his run and he found himself when he would see people saying, good morning to them. Cause that's like just his normal kind of like muscle memory almost when he's on a run and he sees someone, he says, good morning. Cause it's always in the morning. And then when he got home, I think he jumped right in the shower and changed into like work clothes. I can't remember the exact example, but like he was on this complete autopilot of yeah. what he does essentially in the morning. And the power of this is just like, we spend so much of our lives and our time in habit mode in like unconscious, like ex- just kind of going through the motions without really thinking about it. And I think that's why habits are so important and relevant to businesses is once you get in, if your product can be part of someone's habit where it's just happening unconsciously, mm-hmm. um, it's going to be used a lot more than if they have to like consciously think about it and, you know, do the more rational process of deciding to use your product or engage with whatever. So I found it so interesting, that whole thing about like habits and we just do it subconsciously. It was really interesting for me to read this, having just had a social media break because Uh I was thinking about how so automatic it is to check social, like how often like I'd pick up my phone and just want to touch it. And it's like, it absolutely is a habit. Like I just sit at my desk. Oh, I'm just going to switch my phone. Or like I sat down on the sofa at the end of the day. Oh, I'm going to check it before I go to bed. Like, and it's weird how until you actually try and break it, you don't realize how much of a habit it actually is. Yeah. I've, that's such a funny example. Like I've tried a couple of distraction blockers mm. on my phone where, um, and there's one that's actually very good called Opal. If anyone's interested, we can link to it in the show notes, but in a certain time period from 6 to 10 a.m., if I open my phone and try to open certain apps, it like it does not allow it. Yeah. And it's so annoying. It gives you this message <laughs> that's like, oh, nope, time to focus. And I'm like, but literally every day I run into this. So it's just pretty amazing that like, and I, I haven't even noticed that I'm trying to do that. It's just kind of like this. That's what my hand does when it opens the phone. I open my email. I try to open Instagram, like whatever. So yeah, I think the idea of trying to incorporate your products or your services or anything into someone's unconscious habits is a really interesting question that obviously it's a lot more intuitive to think about how that works for an app or a phone game or something. But I think there are ways that we can think about our own services and products in that context. So that's, that is really exciting. And, and yeah, this first chapter to me is a lot about like, what is the point of talking about habits when it comes to business? And mm-hmm. the point is that the more your, your products and services can be part of people's habits financially, that's going to be better for your business because like Cheryl said, it increases customer lifetime value. Another good point was, and it allows you to have more price flexibility. So if someone really depends and like it's ingrained in their routines and their habits to use your product, you can probably raise your prices more easily and they're going to just go with it because they're committed to your product. Whereas Mm -hmm. if they're not, they'll just say, oh, you know what? I'm just going to find the cheaper version of this. Like it's not worth $5 a month more. So I'm going to go do something else. So the more you have people committed and like you've become part of their life, the easier it is to raise your prices. Yeah. Um, supercharging growth, like Cheryl said. And there's some other, some other good examples. I think competition advantage is another one of them because you have a bigger market share. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, but a thing we haven't mentioned about this is there actually is like a graph diagram. I never know what the right words for these things are for actually showing you how the habit zone works. And it's based off there being two factors. So one frequency, how often the behavior occurs and the perceived utility. So how useful and rewarding the behavior is. And one of the things that was like really important about the graph was like obviously frequency like the the more people use it, then the quicker it becomes a habit. And so that's why when we're encouraging things to be like daily or like in the book, he talks about Google and how people are using it multiple times a day. So it's very quickly, it will become a habit. Perceived utility, people have to get what they want out of using it. But there was this idea that actually, even if something is really good and so the utility is great, if the frequency is too low, it, it's never going to actually happen. Like it, it's just always going to have to be a conscious decision for someone to have to use your product. And so I thought that's something like, actually it might be that someone listening has something that genuinely it's never going to be often enough that it actually can be a habit. As we said, some of the techniques are still, you can use them, but the idea of looking at the frequency of use and the perceived utility. Yeah, totally. I was, that was a big takeaway for me. was the idea of frequency. Like, mm-hmm we can't expect people to reliably use our stuff or engage with our things as easily. If it's like a once in a, once a month type thing, like finding ways to make it a daily thing or having an offer that is something people engage with daily in some way is probably a good idea for anyone who can make that happen, depending on what your business model is. And I, my mind this whole time was kind of, reeling with different ideas for like product-based businesses. Like how do we make our product something that is not used once a month or once a week, but daily. Um, And that might mean like a new offer of some kind, but super interesting. Another kind of my final thing to say in this first section, before we get into the hooked model is the concept of vitamins versus painkillers. Yeah. And um, I'm going to read a quote that, is directly from the book. So are you building a vitamin or a painkiller is a common, almost cliche question. Many investors ask founders eager to cash their first venture capital check. The correct answer from the perspective of most investors is the latter, a painkiller. Painkillers solve an obvious need, relieving a specific pain and often have quantifiable markets. Think Tylenol, the brand name of acetaminophen and the product's promise of reliable relief. Vitamins, by contrast, do not necessarily solve an obvious pain point. Instead, they appeal to users' emotional rather than functional needs. That's taking your multivitamin each morning. And so I just think like the marketing implication of this is really useful to think about. It's a lot easier to sell something that is a direct solution to a pain. And we Mm -hmm. talk about pain points a lot in marketing and making sure that we're addressing them, not taking advantage or like pouring salt in the wound of pain points, but like when we know our audience has a pain, talking about how we can help with that. And vitamins, on the other hand, like trying to touch, it's more of like a smart, responsible thing to do, but it doesn't solve a short-term pain point, which it's harder to sell that. So I think that's just an interesting thing to keep in mind when it comes to marketing. I'm I'm not actually totally sure how this fits into habits, but... (laughs) So what he said was that habit-forming technology is both... So it might seem at first like it's a nice to have, but once the Mm. habit's established, it becomes an ongoing pain remedy because at first you might think, oh, this is quite a novel thing or I like this, but wouldn't after a while, it's like you have to use it Hmm. because, and I was trying to think when I think when we get into the examples where he shares some of the examples later on, but you can see how that happens that actually what was if I think of it like things that weren't part of our life then become so part of our life like it will be a pain to remove them interesting yeah yeah he says avoiding pain is a key motivator in all species when we feel discomfort we seek to escape the uncomfortable sensation and in the next chapter which is the trigger we'll explore how negative sensations trigger users to reach for a solution For now, the important thing to remember is that habit-forming products create associations in users' mind and that the solution to their pain may be found in your product's use. Interesting. So this does tie back a little bit to like the morality of 
yeah. of creating a product that you're essentially hooking people on. So interesting, interesting. Uh, triggers? <laughs> triggers. So I would just first, like, let's just kind of describe physically what this hooked model looks like. Yes. It's a circle, really, that it's like a cycle that moves from the top in a circle foundation and then around to the starting point eventually. There's four quadrants in it. And so there's four steps in this cycle. And so the first one, which we'll talk about first, is trigger, then it's action, then variable reward, then investment. So it might, like, I do actually think it's useful to get a visual of this. So Mm -hmm. feel free to Google, like, the hooked model near EO, who's the author, and you'll be able to see it. But what we're going to be talking about for the next four sections, essentially, of this conversation is each quadrant of this model, which goes in a circle, and then eventually the last section of it should hopefully start the cycle all over again so that it's just a continuous cycle of being hooked. So the first starting point here is the trigger. Yeah. So the trigger is what starts this habit loop. And the there are two types of triggers he talks about. So this idea of an external one versus an internal one. And this is interesting for us to look at in terms of how like people use both sets of triggers, basically. So external triggers will be where the company themselves are doing something to trigger people to take an activity. And actually the the terms that are used are probably ones that people might have come across before. So they cross over marketing quite a lot. So there's like pay triggers. So this is where like you can use advertising um, to actually put something in front of people that triggers them to start this habit loop off. Earn triggers. So this would be like press where you are again getting in front of people, but it's not something that you've actually paid for. Relationship triggers. Um, this is where someone else, and I think this is the one that I, re- I really thought about how tech companies do this. So someone else we know actually might send us something. And so therefore that's what our trigger is. And that's like when we think of a lot of social like media sites, that's what happens in the beginning, isn't it? It's like a friend is like, oh, they will invite you. You know, when you go into loads of apps and they ask like, invite your friends. So then obviously you get a message, you get an email, you get a text. So that's like the relationship triggers. And then we have own triggers. So this will be where if a company has like your actual email address or they have your number so they can message you, they, this is will be when they send a message out that way. And usually for all of the products, it starts off with an external trigger. So the whole thing about how we're going to make people begin a habit loop in the first place is to have to use a um, external one, but for the, like the longevity of the product, actually, that's when you need to be looking at what do the internal triggers become. Because actually, to have to constantly like be running advertising or sending people messages, that, that that's not going to actually create a habit that's going to like last for a long time. And also, as a company, you probably only have so much money; you can only do it for so long. Whereas, once you get to the point where someone has an internal trigger for using your product, that's when things change. Mm-hmm. So um, some of the examples of an internal trigger would be they're around like emotions. So it can be things like if you're feeling bored, if you're lonely, if you're frustrated, you're confused, you're indecisive. And I think that, for example, the example in this bit of the book is like someone who uses Instagram. And I was like, oh yeah, the internal trigger of I'm just bored. So most people mm-hmm. I think then start scrolling. It's like I have a moment of time, I'm in a queue, I don't have anything to do for two minutes, what can I do? most of us pick up our phone and do something. And so it's just boredom is the cue. But I think all of us will have a different thing we do when we're bored. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's the kind of last section of this trigger chapter is about building for triggers. So Mm -hmm. it's thinking about like, how do we actually create these triggers? And he says, the ultimate goal of a habit forming product is to solve the user's pain by creating an association so that the user identifies the company's product or service as the service as the source of relief. Mm-hmm. So, and he quotes Evan Williams, who's one of the co-founders of blogger and Twitter saying that the internet is a giant machine designed to give people what they want. We often think the internet enables you to do new things, but people just want to do the same things they've always done, <laughs> which is really interesting. Yeah. And so when it comes to 
getting to the bottom of like, what are these pain points when we're, when we're trying to build into our own marketing and businesses and building our own hooked model and loop, how do we figure out what these triggers are? There's a really interesting method that I've heard of before, but I think in this context, it makes a ton of sense, which is called the Mm -hmm. five whys method. And this is a technique from Toyota when they would be looking at their scientific approach to building cars, essentially, they would ask the question why five times to get clear to the nature of the problem. So as an example, let's say we're... So his example actually is email. We're building out email for the first time. There's nothing called email yet. And we're inventing email. And our target user is a middle manager named Julie. And we're kind of going through this five-stage series of whys to figure out what is like the root of why this product would be useful to her. So why number one, why would Julie want to use email? Answer is so she can send and receive messages. Why would she want to do that? Because she wants to share and receive information quickly. Why does she want to do that? To know what's going on in the lives of her coworkers, friends, and family. Why does she need to know that? To know if someone needs her. And then the fifth why is why would she care about that? Because she fears being out of the loop. And that's like kind of where you've landed on your like aha moment of this is about fear and fear of being left out and fear of like missing out or whatever. And that's kind of the trigger that we can speak to when it comes to encouraging people to use this product and triggering them to, to use it as like, this can help you with this pain or this fear that you have. So I think that five stage why question is something we can all do with our businesses, whether or not it's in the context of like creating a hooked model. I just think it's really interesting to dig a little bit deeper in your ideal customer's mentality to figure out like, why is it that they would be buying your product? It's more than the fact that they want a necklace or Mm -hmm. a face or a coach, whatever, a graphic designer. Like what is the ultimate pain or desire that your product or service is delivering. And that is a lot easier to get to when you go a little bit deeper than just asking like, why would someone use this product? Okay. Why why would they want to do that? Five times. No, it's a really good technique. And I think, because obviously the first questions we come across are like, it seems like it's really obvious and in many factors like it is like the external motivation or it's the first thing people reason people are doing it for but actually by keeping on asking why that will get you to like the core reason I suppose and that does enable you to change like your approach to your marketing and make that a lot stronger so I'm really glad you brought that one up because I was like this is a really good example of even if you don't have products that technique Mm -hmm. works for every single person yeah And it works in the context of creating a trigger for a loop or just like knowing your customer better and being able to speak to them better. And I think like we're going to talk about this more and more, but I just want to like plant the seed now that, you know, speaking to someone's negative emotions, which is often where internal triggers start is like from a negative emotion, like fear or shame or some like internal pain speaking to that in our marketing and in our businesses. I just want to encourage you to be very, very thoughtful about how you do this because there are so many businesses who do this in an unethical way, who like intentionally try to make people feel bad about themselves and then, you know, show them that there's only one solution and it's to buy from their business. And I'm thinking of things like the diet industry, for example, or like the beauty industries. And I know that no one listening is going to go tell people that they look terrible and they need to buy the skincare thing in order because it's the only solution. But just if you're going to go down the road of like speaking to negative emotions and really getting to these deeper feelings that people have, I just want to encourage you to be really thoughtful about how you speak to about those things and um, just, you know, recognize that there's always a human on the other end of any marketing communication you do. So being really conscious of that is super important. We'll talk about that more because there's a whole chapter about it, but um, I just, I just, I felt a little like, I don't know, by this whole chapter, I was a little bit kind of like, <laughs> this makes like I'm a little bit uncomfortable, but like it's good, but I'm a little uncomfortable. So, yeah, I mean, it's all at the end of the day, it all comes down to like intention, doesn't it? 
like the everything can be used for like for good and for evil can't they and that's the thing yeah. like the techniques by themselves aren't inherently good or bad it's how they're applied yeah. totally and one thing I'll just say before I move on to action is that each the end of each chapter there's like a nice yeah. little sum up box and there's also kind of an assignment so if you are looking to go through this process and actually think about how can you create a hooked model for your business the end of every chapter has some like it's a do this now section mm-hmm. where you can do some thinking and brainstorming and kind of walks you through the process of implementing so we're not going to go through that in depth in this chat but grab the book and you can see that if you want to like literally go through and create this for yourself just look through at the end of each chapter read the book but at the end of each chapter it's very concrete action steps yeah it's actually a really good balance because I think the book has like quite a lot of stories and it that takes you through the model quite well but actually you know sometimes when there's loads of useful stuff in the book you sort of miss it whereas like that's the only sort of questions and implementation bits and action points there are so actually it's quite I think a good book that if you really wanted to like put the model into practice it's an easy one to actually grab and be able to do that yeah I agree it's not so overwhelming that you just don't even know where to start it's very clear what to do Okay, so the next step, step two in the hooked model is action. And this is the point where we've been, there's been the trigger of either the external trigger, like we see something from the business reminding us to do something or an internal trigger of, okay, now this is a habit that I just like immediately reach for the app when I feel a certain way, let's say. The step after that is that we take action Mm -hmm. and There's a lot of science in this chapter about what actually makes people take action. Mm -hmm. Um, We won't probably go through all of that, but (laughs) I think one interesting piece that um, the director of Persuasive Technology Lab, Dr. BJ Fogg, has developed a model around is that he says in order for people to take action, there needs to be three things happen. One, the user has to be motivated to take action. Two, the user has to have the ability to complete the action. And three, the trigger activates the behavior. And so we've talked about that trigger. And what we're left is the user has to be motivated and they have to have the ability to complete the action. Something interesting he says is like, okay, so what makes us motivated? And this same guy, Dr. BJ Fogg, says that all humans are motivated to seek pleasure and avoid pain seek hope and avoid fear and to seek social acceptance and avoid rejection. So these are kind of like the core motivators are pleasure, hope and social acceptance. And that's like, the fact is actually pretty simple. Like there's not many options. I think that's a really good thing for everyone to actually think about. Like actually which one is your, like, mm-hmm. is your product or your service related to? Because it's not like, here's a hundred options. It's like, actually, which one is this going to answer? If on first looking, you can't work that out, I'd spend a little bit more time to actually get to the bottom of that because that will determine some of the other factors. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we've talked certainly about how things in past book club conversations, especially I'm thinking about atomic habits, mm-hmm. how we're much more likely to do things when they're easy to do. Um, yeah. And that's a big part of this ability section. So like your, your, per, your customer has to have the ability to complete the action. And really a huge part of ability is that it's easy. Yeah. And so when he talks about something called the elements of simplicity, like what, what influences how difficult a task is to do. And here are some things to think about. So if you wanted to make it really easy for your person to take the action you want them to take, these are some things to think about. So time, which is how long it takes to complete the action, money, how much it costs, physical effort, the amount of labor involved in taking the action, brain cycles, so the level of mental effort and focus, Social deviance, how accepted the behavior that you're taking is by others, and non-routine. So how much does the action match or disrupt existing routines? So essentially, the easier the action is, the more likely your customer is going to be to do it and to go through this cycle and you know continue through the hooked model. I liked that bit because I thought it's, it's easy to think simple. Normally, you can just be like, 
you don't actually know how to work it out, but you could actually go through that and be like, well, if I looked at this from a time, how could I make it any faster? Or how could I make it cost any less? Or how could I make it be less intensive? And actually, if you're not getting the results you want necessarily right now, actually go through that framework. And is there any way that I can make this simpler? Yeah. And sometimes these changes that you're making are so, so tiny. Mm. So for example, like, and I think when you're talking earlier about how this is a bit dated, a lot of that yeah. comes from like the screenshots that we're seeing. Oh, the from, screenshots like, are so good. They were- it's from like <laughs> Pinterest. You're seeing a screenshot of Pinterest and you're like, this is, this looks like it's from the nineties. Like it's so, it looks so old, but a lot of the examples are still <laughs> relevant and what he's showing is like one thing that Pinterest does to make it easier to increase the ease of continuing to use the product is that they kind of were one of the first people to do the infinite scroll Mm. which is that when you're going through the content on your Pinterest feed you don't have to say okay page two okay let's go to page three when you reach the bottom of each page it just the content continues forever. And this is one way that like it's increasing the ease of use is that, you know, you don't actually ever have to like click anything. It just continues to populate. What I found really interesting is if you think about it, Google only just made that not that many years ago. You know how like they still had you had to click onto page two. And actually they've only in recent years to go into an infinite scroll. But you like Pinterest did it like how many years ago? Yeah, they were the like one of the first. And yeah. You can spend hours and hours on Pinterest and you always could for this reason, (laughs) because you just, you never have that trigger of like, okay, do I want to go to the next page or am I done? It's just like, Mm -hmm. it keeps going. Another example they gave was like the iPhone. A lot of times something that Apple recognized years ago, obviously, because this was written in 2014, (laughs) but is that, you know, a lot of times you really want to take a photo like right now because something's happening, like your kid's doing something funny or your, your dog or whatever, like it's a, you're driving by and you see something pretty and you want to take something like immediately. But in the past you had to like unlock your phone, go to the camera app, like open that up. And it took like several seconds. And oftentimes by that point, like whatever you're trying to take a photo of, like the moment had passed. So they made like a simple like swipe up feature where it's easy to like open your camera right away. Um, Mm -hmm. because, because you don't have to go through all the extra steps. So there's just all these simple examples of like in your product or service, this could be reducing the steps in like checkout, the checkout process or making your confirmation email simpler and easier to kind of understand. It's, it doesn't have to be this big reinvention of like everything in your business. It's just like making these small changes that make it easier for people to do what you want them to do essentially and do what, they they want to do really yeah i definitely felt like these principles here were like because obviously they are very techy i did think a lot about people's sales process and how people buy and being like mm-hmm. actually if people are buying anything online all of these techniques because a lot of it's been around like cleaning up home pages like making it really obvious the action you want people to take and all that stuff i thought that's what all of us want to do on our websites when we come to sell because mm-hmm. we want to make so I think actually, yeah, a lot of these techniques are probably really good to think about also in relation to like, like the online sales process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And the last part of this action section, which I loved is this heuristics and perception section, because it's all about behavioral economics. Standard economics is about, you know, assuming that all humans make rational, like price-based decisions and behavioral economics understands that it's actually not that simple. And a lot of times we don't do what people would think would be the rational, like price, exclusively price motivated decision. A lot of times there are other things at play that help us make decisions. And so this chapter is, talks about a few different laws or effects that affect how people act basically that it's not always it's not something you would be able to predict it's not rational all the time Mm -hmm. but factors that affect what people do aside from like price and rational factors so the first one is scarcity and this is you know they talk about some interesting studies here but basically the principle is that when something appears scarce, so it seems like there's not very many left or there's only a couple of this, but there's 20 of the other thing, we perceive that the thing that there's not very many of is is more valuable and we, we want that. Yeah. Regardless of whether we know anything about it, 
we want that thing that's like gone. And the example on the is like on websites where people put like X mark left in stock because as soon as you think it's running out, like you're like, I've got to buy it. I've got to get it. It's going to disappear. Yeah. Um, I liked the other one I liked from this bit was the, the anchoring effect about how mm. basically just knowing what the first price is and therefore like, and then when someone says something is discounted, then you're like, oh, this is exciting. It's discounting. I've got a bargain and people want to buy it. And actually in the example, he shared how like it was in a store. And actually when he looked at some of the other, like buried the same product, it turned out like they were better value. And like, I know you see this a lot, actually, I think in food shops where one version of like the multiples they've made like that discount that discount you think is that the best offer but actually it's not but because it's on offer that's the one that everyone's drawn to so Mm -hmm. i think also again this was one where i'm like all of us can have a look at this doesn't matter what other businesses how it operates everyone can look at using the anchoring effect yeah and you know there's a couple of others that you can read about but i would say the the wrap up and the do this now section of the action element of the model is really good. Like just, it's really good, useful homework that you can do to really think through this part of your model. We'll, we'll leave it at that, but definitely pick up the book if you don't have it and go through that homework because it's super interesting. Okay. My favorite, I think of this model is the third element, which is variable reward. And I just, I love the concept of the variable reward. Before we talk about what a variable reward is, let's talk about what a reward is. And this is essentially that you get something out of using the product or opening the app. Maybe it's like, you know, there's so many things that can be delivered and will give you some kind of like positive feeling or like satisfaction. Um, It could be like, you know, you get points. It could be you like advance a level or you get a badge. It could be you get like social feedback from others. Like they liked your video or you get, you know, certainly on social media, we're all familiar with like my reel got a lot of views. Like that's, that's a, that's a reward in a sense. Mm -hmm. He talks about three different types of rewards. So rewards of the tribe, which we don't love the word tribe, but we will share it because that's the word he used. This is the search for social rewards fueled by connectedness with other people. Rewards of the hunt is the search for material resources and information. And then rewards of the self is the search for intrinsic rewards of mastery, competence, and completion. So these are the three different types of rewards that we can think about offering to people through our product in some way is like that connection with other people, the material resources, like maybe money or stuff or the intrinsic rewards of like, again, this feeling of mastery, competence or or completion. But then the bit about variable reward Mm -hmm. is actually the bit that really gets people hooked. And so it's this idea that you... Because if we get the same every single time, we get absolutely used to it. It loses novelty. We're not interested. And actually the way most people are truly hooked to things is by having a variable reward. And I, and they talk about how that's why people, when they go to slot machines, like you don't know what you're going to get every single time. And it's that anticipation that this time might be the time Mm -hmm. (laughs) that makes people want to keep on trying. And reading that actually really made me think about how I am so hooked to TikTok. (laughs) <laughs> because I was like, because I actually think it is the way that algorithm is that yeah. it's like so, it feels so different that I genuinely like, I have no idea when I swipe up what craziness is going to be. And it's weird, like, even if I have a few that I don't like, that doesn't make me stop. That I just think, well, if I keep going, I'm going to get a good one. <laughs> and so I was like, oh my gosh, that is exactly like, I'd love for him to have written that book now that TikTok exists. Yeah. Because. I was like, to me, that is a classic example of a variable reward. Yeah. And the variable, so that's a variable reward in terms of like, you know, what content is being shown to you. But there's yeah. also the variable reward of sometimes when I lock into my email, I have emails from people that I want to get emails <laughs> from. And sometimes I don't and I'm disappointed. Or sometimes when I log into Instagram, I see people liked my stuff and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I log into my checkout software and I see that I've gotten new purchases. Other times I don't. And so the idea is that if every single time you logged in, you got the thing you want, 
you would think that would be a good thing because we want the thing we want, right? But it's actually the fact that a lot of times you're kind of getting, you're coming up short a lot of times. That's what keeps you coming back is like, you mm-hmm. want to, you want to show up that time. That's going to like have the, the big results on your content or the email with the opportunity or whatever it is that you're looking for. Like the fact that that doesn't always come is why it's so appealing to continue using the product. This is the one for me that is very hard to think about implementing, actually. Yeah. Because actually most of us are like, this is what we're going to give you and we deliver on the promise and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> like actually adding in variety is hard, hard, harder. But I do think that it's worth thinking about. Mm. It could be as simple as like sending a surprise like once a month or something, a surprise email to all your clients that like, has something really useful in it or, um, you know, like a gift card to buy themselves a coffee or just like small surprises. Mm -hmm. I think surprise, I guess, is what I would say falls into this category of variable rewards, like ways that you can surprise and delight your customer. Also, like I imagine if someone is someone that like packs things, like I've seen when people like will add in an extra something and it's like people don't always get it. But it's like you might have just been the lucky person that day, for example. Yeah. In your like physical orders. Yeah. Physical orders. Mm-hmm. So that's the reward. And people like this is something that gets people kind of in this hooked model is that they want the reward and they don't know if they're going to get it. And so they keep going through the cycle. So the next step is investment. Yes, which I found very interesting, this one, because it's all about how like by actually making people invest and this can be with their time, this can be with effort, this can be with money. it's, It's like a commitment that makes people stay around, basically. It makes people keep on using it. And the more people invest the more it becomes like that, that habit, that loop sticks even more and more. And like one of the examples, which I thought was interesting was this idea of like, how could we value things that we put um, effort into more? And it talks about how like the value you feel from making Ikea furniture. Mm-hmm. Because like you spent the time and energy <laughs> and therefore you're like, I did this. So I'm really proud of it. And therefore that actually is probably way more in a way I think it's probably like we think of it quite sentimentally rather than actually if you look at it, it's been like this is a few pieces of like not even real wood that are put together but because you made it you have a different attitude mm-hmm. and then in terms of like actually when this idea of like investment when we think of like some of the tech products we use it, it was like how actually the longer you're in them and the more you use them the actual more valuable they come yeah because they have they, they have more stuff and I was thinking about this recently like I don't really use my Facebook that much anymore but because I've had it for like 13 years when old stuff happens I'm like like I get the flashbacks or whatever I'm like oh I still want to keep the account open just because of all the stuff I've got in there and so actually, and that makes a real, real difference when we think about switching. And like, that's one of the big things, obviously, when we're looking at the, t- t- making these products is we want to make it so that people don't switch. And it's like, actually, the more you can, and as soon as possible, they talk a lot, like the sooner you can get people investing, the sooner you can get them having spent more energy, more time or money, then that means the likelihood of them switching is going to come a lot less likely. Yeah, I that's all about what he calls storing value and I think that's something yeah. that there there are actually ways that we can all do this. Maybe maybe not all, like maybe maybe you listener are the exception where there's no possible <laughs> way, but I'm thinking like there are ways that you can you know, have a customer history for example where people can look at their past orders with you and like really easily reorder something. Or you could have, you know, if you're a service provider, you could have like, I don't know, if you were a coach, you could have records that are really clearly articulated about like all the progress that you've made over time. I think there are small ways that you can kind of build a body of body of work or like a body of engagement together between you and your customer um, that, mm. that is going to be, it may not be the same as like, you know, you have Spotify and they know all the songs that you love and you have 25 years of playlists, but there are small ways that we can all, I think, build a, 
history, basically, with our customers through records, through through whatever whatever else, like shared yeah. content, essentially. And I actually have like a real example of this that happened to me recently. Yeah, which was. I have, cause I have Snapfish, which is an app that you can, every single month you can get 50 like free prints delivered to your house, but you just pay the postage, but the prints are free. And someone was like, well, why would they do that? And I actually at Christmas was trying to like do a big set of prints to make my vision board and just like wrap up the year. And I was like, the fact is, if you have got, you've been getting your prints for the rest of the year, you are really used to that software now. And so actually when it's the end of the year and they start doing all the promotions, like buy the big photo book and all the more expensive products, because you've already uploaded your photos into the app and you already know how that app works, you're so much more likely to do that than all of the competitors mm-hmm. because it's so much harder work. Because I like did look at some of the competitors and I was like, oh, I've got to download something else or, oh, I've got to do that. And it's just like, and I'm just like, if you already use that app, you use it all the time, you've been using it and they've got you used to it every single month on a very low point price point, then the actual, like it's a loss leader, isn't it? But mm-hmm. the actual ultimate goal is for you to get like the big things. So I was like, oh yeah, I can see how they've like trapped you by helping you one, learn the skill, which he talks about. So there's a value of like, actually the prints are in there, photos are in there, but also the skill of you've learned that. So now to try and learn something else, even though it might not be that hard, it's still, there is that bit of friction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I have this with a ton of things. Like I have so many photos and I'm like paying for all the storage. And I'm, I'm like, it'd probably be better <laughs> if I just moved it all over to Google Photo and that'd be cheaper than all of the space I'm buying on Apple. But I am like, you know, I'm so tapped into Apple that like it's so overwhelming. So like the more that you commit essentially over time to one brand or one type of product, like it's hard, it becomes harder to move. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why I have Apple and Google and Microsoft pay for the story. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's how they get you. Okay, so now is the chapter that I'm really excited to get to, which is called What Are You Going to Do With This? And this is basically like the ethics of all of this. Like if you're going to get someone, someone actually hooked and using your product or your service like habitually without even intentional thought a lot of times what are the ethics of this is that like okay to do to like kind of push people into certain actions and there's a really interesting matrix that he introduces like a quadrant that i think is a really helpful way to think about this so it's like so it's called the manipulation manipulation matrix or oh, tongue twister <laughs> and he gets you to ask yourself um, would I use the product myself and will the product help users materially improve their lives? And so depending on how you answer those questions, um, you can then end up being like one of four options, which was peddler, facilitator, dealer, and entertainer. So the facilitator is the offer that the maker uses it. So yes, I would use this product or I do use this product. And yes, it materially improves the user's life. And this, I think, is like, this is where we want to (laughs) be as much as possible. Like this is where you are selling something, you stand by 1000%, you would or you do use it yourself. And it makes people's lives better, like objectively. Um, This, I think, is where there's really not a lot of gray area in terms of ethics. Like I feel okay using these tactics around building like a habit forming product, essentially. If I know without a shadow of a doubt that it is, I'm not just rationalizing it. Like I know for sure that it makes people's lives better, that they want it, that I would use it or I do use it myself. So that's, I think like the place where we want to be as much as possible. Yeah. And then the next one would be peddler, which is where we still have it materially improves the user's life, but the maker themselves might not use it. So they don't think they're going to use it. Now he does in the book, sometimes that might be because you think like your former self would have used it. And so it could have been something that is just not relevant to you now, but you could see how like a past self. And I do think some people do create products based on like what they would have needed a few years ago. But he does warn you that the further back, that is the more likely there is to be like not the right correlation you might not actually know stuff remember things correctly etc so you go into more and more gray area but at least at that point you still are trying to actually do create something that is 
changing people's lives for the better. Mm-hmm. The next uh, item on the quadrant is the entertainer. And this would be something that your maker would use or does use, but that it's not something that improves the user's life. So this, I'm not sure this is super relevant for most listeners, but this is about games. Games. Yeah, really. Or maybe like memes. I don't know. I I can't really think of a business listening who would fall into this because like if you're an artist like I think art is actually making people's lives better. That's not just entertainment, but this, yeah, the examples that he's giving is like Angry Birds, Pac-Man, Mario Brothers. And I think that, you know, there's, there's an argument to be made for certain games that like they actually do make your life better and they help you develop skills and connect with other people and whatnot. But there are certainly games and like, I've got some on my phone, uh, candy crush, for example, that like, there's really no getting around the fact that it does not make my life better in any way. Um, it's just a way to pass time essentially when I need a distraction. So yeah, I don't, I, I don't see really anyone listening here. Do you? No, no, no. I was like, to me, the games was the main thing that came into my head. I couldn't think of another one and I definitely can't think of how it's relevant to other people. Yeah. And then last but not least, the one you're going to have the most issues with, the dealer. So does not improve the user's life and the maker would not use it. I'm going to let you go, Lauren, because I feel like you're going to have a lot to say about this one. (laughs) um, Just don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, don't do this. Like, don't sell something you don't use or you wouldn't use and that doesn't make people's life better. Like, I feel like this is something that's just like a... This is like where the get rich quick kind of schemes come in. This is where, like... Yeah. I don't I don't even know of the examples that I would say here. I'm a little bit... I don't want to, like, just put all MLMs in this box because I know that some people in... MLMs, which is also called network marketing. Some people like do use the thing or like the... Yeah, I was going to say that some people do use the product. Or they, you know, they could argue that the product makes life better or can make life better. But in a lot of just the the nature of the way that marketing, uh, multi-level marketing businesses are set up is that generally with the exception of like 1% of people who engage in them, it does not make your life better if you join an MLM. So anyway, that that's the one thing that kind of comes into this category for me is be very wary of multi-level marketing. I don't know. I kind of think I don't need to say too much to the people listening to this podcast about this category. Yeah. Like don't sell something that you don't stand by and that you wouldn't use. And that doesn't make people's life better. There are so many things that you could offer that, you could totally stand by a hundred percent that, you know, make people's life better in some small way. I guess one thing I do just want to say here is like your, your product doesn't have to change someone's world entirely to make their life better. Even a necklace can make someone's life better in some way. If it's like well-made and it's, you know, it is made of what you say it's made of. And like all the ethics are like checked off, like, your, your product can be small and still make people's life better in some small way. This matrix isn't about like saying your life, your product only makes people's life better if it's like a self-improvement product ex- explicitly. Mm-hmm. So I just want to say that because a lot of product based businesses can get hung up on this and feeling like their product doesn't make people's lives better. It's just a thing, but there's, there's more to it than that. No, there's definitely more to it than that. There's lots of products I've brought. They bring value to people in their diff- in different ways, don't they? That's the thing. Yeah. And then, if there's nothing else you want to say that, I think we'll go into habit testing, which actually I really liked. No. Oh. <laughs> I really liked it because what I thought was interesting was that the, the, this at this point, the idea is it's up and running. And actually, then you're trying to look to see like, is this working? And so he talks about how you want to try and find the people within your users would be actually following the habit and actually are. And actually what I thought was quite interesting is being like, 
you could still apply this as a if you're someone and I'd actually argue probably more like if you're a if you're a product based business particularly if you're someone that might be able to buy multiple times a year for example being like whose behavior actually is like the ideal like someone might have someone where it's very clear like they always come back like every quarter they buy another one or like they clearly like buying lots of presents for their friends because they really like that make and they think it's great quality and actually looking at who are the people that are like doing exactly like what you want them to do Mm-hmm. And then off the back of that, then be like, okay, you try and look to work out, they call it like codify. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to actually work out what it is, what's their habit path. So are there any like similarities? What are the commonalities? What has been their journey? So that then you can be like, how do we then make more people go yeah. through that journey? So yeah. you modify it. Kind of like a double down on what works, like figure yeah. out what's working and then find ways to expand that impact. I mean, I'm quite a data person. So just the thought of being like, I was like, can I go work for a tech company just for a week just to do this? Like I really got excited <laughs> by it. Really did. Oh but I did think actually, if you were someone that has got, depending on like the level of your sales, that probably is still something you could look at this idea of being like, you know, what what is my ideal situation? And like, who is exemplifying that? And is there anything else we can be doing to try and recreate that? And I thought in a world where sometimes I feel like people are one way or the other, like they mean they're really data geeks or they're not at all. This would just be a, a nice way to think about it. If you've got a whole load of data you've never looked at, go look at it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. There's so much we can learn from all the data we already have available. Yeah. Okay. So... That's kind of the model. That's the bulk of the book. Obviously, in a one-hour conversation, we can't get into everything. So if you're interested in this theory and this concept, definitely pick up a copy. It is dated, as we said, but I think the it's, it's dated in the examples that they give, but not the concept. Like, it's still super and valid. Actually, I think the fact some of it is dated means it makes it's more obvious and it makes more sense. Like I think, you know, something was so close to us right now, your behavior might be too sucked up in it, for example. Like I wonder if I was reading about TikTok, how I would feel, for example. Yeah. Whereas because it's older things, it feels like it's the past. And I think actually it does give you a bit of level of separation, which I actually think I really enjoyed the book. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So what would be your one takeaway for people if they were to just do one thing differently or implement one thing as a result of this book? It would be to actually work out what the ideal behavior of your customer or client would be. I think we actually don't think about that that much. It could actually end up being that you're someone that's like, someone's only meant to work with me once and then never meant to work with me again. Or someone's meant to buy like cards. They're just meant to buy their gifts every Christmas and then I don't expect them to buy in between. But maybe it's not. Um, and I think knowing in an ideal world and actually taking that time to think about it, then you can start to look at how you can engineer making that change. But I think actually a lot of business owners haven't really got down to being like, what would be like my ideal like customer frequency and how they'd behave, like what they would, how much they'd buy, how often, et cetera. Mm -hmm. My takeaway would be to think about how you can create some variable rewards in your business in some way. So and and really the way that I'm thinking about this as a takeaway is like, what is, how can I surprise people? How can I make them log in one time to my membership and something's different and new and exciting and it's not what they're used to or on the podcast, like how can I show up with stuff that's occasionally like totally out of the blue and like just surprising and delightful and and as a result have people make sure they want to be subscribed because they're like oh wait sometimes I get this because I'm subscribed to the podcast or whatever your product is or your email program or whatever Um, just thinking about how you can throw in some some things out of left field that really delight people sometimes well this was a fun one again I think my overall comment is like go through this book and ask yourself what can I learn from this it's not mm. probably going to be 100% applicable if you're not a tech company, which most people listening are not, but there's a lot of really good stuff in here. So have an open mind about it. And I think you, you'll walk away with a lot. I know I did. I had a ton of things on my mind walking away from this book. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I really learned a lot. Like it really got me thinking very different to a lot of the other books we've read. That's yeah. for absolute sure. This is not a repetition. This is going to make you think about things in a different way. And as we all know, sometimes you only need, if you applied one thing well from this book, like 
that could be worth a lot to your business. It yeah. could be, you know, a good change. Yeah. For sure. All right. Lauren, are you going to hear the next book? Yes. Next up, we are talking about feel good productivity. I am very excited about this one. This is by Ali Abdal. The subtitle is How to Do More of What Matters to You. (laughs) How to Do More of What Matters (laughs) to You. Um, And I'm super excited about this because this is a book that I was already following the person. I was already following Ali Abdal. He has a great productivity related YouTube channel and he came out with this book and I was like, Oh my God, I'm so excited to read it. So this is not like I heard about the book and then decided to give it a shot. Mm -hmm. This is like, I've been following this dude. And really what I love about his approach is that he is really a believer that we do things that we want to (laughs) do. So how can we make sure that we're motivating ourselves in a way where the things that we have on our to-do list are things that we want to do. And that's the things that could happen. Like we don't need motivation to go play a video game because we want to play a video game. And I'm the opposite. I've never seen a a single YouTube video by him. (laughs) So I am very intrigued. So this is funny. Yeah. So I've never, I've heard like someone else mentioned him recently and I was like, oh, isn't that same person the book I've got to read? But I've never watched a video in my entire life. Obviously I'm hot on all things productivity though. So I'm very excited to read this book and see what he's got to say. Yeah. So pick up a copy and um, meet us next month on Making a Book Club. Sherelle, thank you for another awesome conversation. This is always so much fun. Thank you for introducing me to a great book. Yay. Okay, so those are our thoughts about Hooked. Did you get any ideas for how you might apply the Hooked theory to your business? What are your thoughts on all of this? DM us on Instagram. Sherelle and I would both love to hear your thoughts. I'm at Lauren Tilton and Sherelle is at Sherelle Griffith. I am so excited to dig into our book for next month. That is Feel Good Productivity, How to Do More of What Matters to You by Ali Abdal. You can find the details from this episode on the show notes page at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 215. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful to have your support. Here are a couple of ways that you can give back to making good. First, I'd be honored if you'd leave a rating and review in your favorite podcast player. And don't forget to subscribe and follow. And second, if you have a friend that you think would enjoy the podcast, send them the link. This episode is at makinggoodpodcast.com slash 215. Thank you for being here and for focusing on making a difference with your small business. Talk to you next time.